You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On March 19th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Scott Mainwaring, Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor of Brazil Studies and the faculty co-chair of the Harvard Brazil Studies Program, author of Party Systems in Latin America, Institutionalization, Decay and Collapse. Candelaria Garay, Associate Professor of Public Policy, Francis Hagopin, Jorge Paulo Lehman, Senior Lecturer on Government at Harvard University, and the Faculty Chair of the Brazil Studies Program at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, and Steve Levitsky, Professor of Government at Harvard University, served as respondents. Anthony Sage, Director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, moderated. happy to be out of discussion around the book that uh, Scott Mainwaring has edited. Uh, the event uh, this afternoon is co-sponsored with the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. Uh, the discussion today takes part of um, what we call here at the Ash Center our program for democracy in hard places, and that is coordinated by both uh, Scott himself and also uh, Tarek Massoud, who I think is coming over here from teaching, so he may be a couple of minutes late. And basically, that program is to try and focus on fostering social science research on democratic experiments, successful and failed, uh, throughout the developing world to look at how deep democratic deficits, for example, what I call collusive institutionalization, in which, you know, a couple of parties purposefully build barriers that exclude other actors, other parties, uh, you know, this is intrinsically a democratically deficient system. Colombia from 1958 to 74 is a quintessential example. So the, the title of the book, the subtitle is Institutionalization, Decay or Erosion and Collapse. The idea of decay is the opposite of institutionalization. That is, patterns move toward less stability and less predictability. And by collapse, I mean a party system in which all of the major parties collapse in a relatively short time span. So it would be the polar opposite of an institutionalized system. A second contribution that we try to make with this book, and I say we collectively, is thinking about how to measure institutionalization. If we've rejected the old concept, right, then the former ways of measurement, the former indicators, also need to be revised. So um, in this book, In particular, in one chapter, I propose 13 indicators. It's a broad set. It it is not parsimonious, but I thought at this stage of thinking about measurement strategy that it was better to err on the side of inclusiveness than to pick a few parsimonious indicators. Um, Later, other scholars might decide, okay, you know, A and B are so highly correlated that we don't need both of them. Um, Second, I focused on both presidential elections and lower chamber elections. Um, Most of the previous related work, including mine, had focused largely on just congressional results. Presidential results in presidential systems are so important that you have to think about them. Third, um, most indicators, most efforts to think about these issues have focused just on short-term results from one election to the next. Um, In this book, we also think about change over a medium term from roughly 1990 to 2015. Again, I think, you know, we're interested in not only what happens in this short term, but also more over the medium term. So these are just some of the kinds of indicators that I used in the book to think about measurement strategies. Um, This is stability in the, in the, the membership of the party system. How much volatility is there? How much change is there in who the main contenders? Second, the more conventional measure, which is known as electoral volatility, 
What is the stability? I think that's something that, you know, people who want to sort of improve democracies, make the world a better place, should think about political parties and party building as a very important strategy. And second, that low levels of institutionalization are bad. I think that's the other lesson in the book, rather than, as Scott was saying, high institutionalization is good. It's rather than low levels of party institutionalization or high fluidity is what is bad for democracy. And so in the book, I mean, I'm basically I'm going to talk about the main sort of goals that the first chapters pursue in the book. One of them is to reconceptualize party system institutionalization. So what Scott just said is that he focuses now on the stability of the members of the party system, the stability of their ideas, and the stability of the vote share. Those are the three major aspects of party system institutionalization. It's more about stability. In the past, the definition that he used to work with included also organizations and included organizational roots in society, whether parties were connected to social organizations, whether they were connected to voters through party IDs, through voter attachments, and whether sort of voters thought that democracy or that elections mattered, whether they granted legitimacy to democracy. Those three aspects, Scott says, are now underpinning stability of the party system. So the new concept of institutionalization is basically about stability. So my first question would be that although he deals with the different aspects of the older concept of conceptualization, my question is about party roots in society. So what has happened with the idea that having connections with organizations was important? So what role does that play in sort of in thinking about the structure of party systems and, and their stability. I, I thought that was my favorite dimension of party systems. <laughs> <laughs> in the past, so, I mean, I just wonder where it, where it went. And then the other thing that I think the book does really nicely is to measure party system institutionalization. And I think that's a great contribution broadly to research. And partly because it tracks the evolution of, of party systems and of 18 party systems in Latin America, but also because it gives other researchers the opportunity to use that data, which I think is a fantastic contribution. So I think that the measurement part of the book is, is really amazing. The other thing that the book does, as Scott mentioned, is to see what the effects of party system institutionalization are. And here she focuses on, on a number of things that many people have said are connected to the fluidity of parties, but actually measures and provides a lot of evidence supporting that. And I thought, as Scott mentioned, one of the really interesting things is the connection between low levels of institutionalization and having less experienced politicians in Congress. And I think that's a very strong sort of, uh, he provides very strong evidence for that across different party systems. And also for the fact that less experienced politicians tend to be less supportive of democracy. So there's a way in which party systems are, or countries that may be experiencing an erosion of democracy have less, less institutionalized parties, and at the same time, that also feeds back into the democratic structure of the, of the system, so continues to undermine democracy. The other thing that I found quite interesting was the stability of policy. The fact that we may think, well, having the opportunity to change policy is really good, especially in societies that are so unfair and unequal, like in Latin America, but having sort of easy policy change can also be a source of those policies that maybe some people like to be changed then again in the future. So it's a recurrent and sort of change and instability of policies that is something that also undermines, may undermine the democratic system. And that's another aspect that he highlights in the book and, and I thought was really important. And then um, another thing he's, he tries to do in the book is to explain why there are different levels of institutionalization. Why some parties become, became more institutionalized or party systems, like the Brazilian party system, for example, and others sort of became less institutionalized, like the Colombian or Argentine party system. And he finds that, that some of, as he said before, like some of the usual suspects we would think, you know, should contribute to making party systems more stable, such as the stock of democracy, like the accumulated experience of democratic <coughs> is actually not helping explain that outcome. So party systems are not more institutionalized because democracies are more sort of are older, or there's a, there's a longer experience with democratic rule. And he doesn't even find that sort of economic change is affecting very much sort of the stability of party systems. But there are these other issues, strong organizations, strong national party organizations appears as a very important aspect of institutionalized party systems. 
And then sort of the electoral rules that favor the incumbents or, or the existing parties in the system rather than favoring the entry of new parties. Those are the things that are really strengthening institutionalization or that come with more institutionalized party systems. So I have a couple of questions regarding that. Uh, I don't know if there will be time, but one is whether ideological differentiation is an important aspect of institutionalization. So we see that the party systems that are more institutionalized are also the party systems in which people can clearly tell what is the ideological positioning of the party. Not only that they are stable over time, but they, they are clearly differentiated, such as Chile, Uruguay, or, or Mexico. Then another question is whether institutionalization, like he says in the book, has been uneven across parties within a party system. So in Brazil, the party system became more institutionalized, but also the workers' party is the party that gained a lot of institutionalization. So one question would be if that unevenness is actually making it more difficult also to explain sort of levels of institutionalization across party systems. And my final question concerns turnout. I mean, is turnout an important aspect of the institutionalization of party systems? And we see, or maybe it's an indicator of a party system becoming less institutionalized when it begins to lose turnout, or an indicator of gaining legitimacy when it gains turnout. So I was wondering what's the relationship with turnout. But overall, I think this is an amazing book, and I strongly recommend everyone to read it. Thank you. to be here for such a, a festive occasion and uh, a celebration uh, of another one of Scott's books. And I expect to see this placard soon oh, on, the, on the, wall of, the wall of honor. So, um, so Scott's uh, work has helped to steer our field for three decades. And I think that's fair to say. And um, with the publication of this book, of Party Systems in Latin America, I think it's fair to say that's going to continue for some more decades. And Scott has published on many important topics, but he's probably best known for this work on party systems. And this began with, as everyone has mentioned so far, building democratic institutions. But I want to say a couple of words about building democratic institutions before we get to the sequel. So this book appeared in 1995. And it's worth noting for the young people in the room that before this book came out, we used to speak of party systems in the world in terms of spatial competition and in terms of how polarized they were. And that followed from whether they were moderately plural or polarized, um, that followed from the number of parties in the party system. This is the way the Italian political scientist Giovanni Sartori had conceptualized party systems in his seminal 1976 book. And so it made sense if what we wanted to know was how parties competed, he turned our attention to the fact that they competed by um, in relation not just to their own constituents, but who their competitors were in a party system. So they had to pay attention to and compete relative to others in the system. Sartori had a strict definition for party systems. Essentially, if there were a party system, it would be what Scott calls institutionalized, or else it couldn't be a party system. So then Scott came along and he relaxed this requirement. And he turned it into a variable. He said that you know, not all party systems in the world exhibit this quality of institutionalization. This was subversive and it was terribly important. If he had not done this, we would not be able to talk about party systems in many emerging democracies outside of the US and Western Europe. Scott made the concept less Eurocentric. And I don't think that um, young scholars of party systems today, some in this room, um, probably know who Giovanni Sartori is but they know who Scott Mayweary is. <laughs> and many books and articles have been written in these intervening 25 years applying this concept of institutionalization of party systems to parties around the world, in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. So that speaks volumes, or at least it's worth two. So today we turn our attention to the sequel. And it's a tall order after this introduction about how how seminal a book, the 1995 book, was to even take this on again. Um, and Scott has done a good job of summarizing uh, the book. I was going to reframe um, Scott's objectives and point out four important um, contributions. But maybe I'll just go quickly and um, get to the points that I wanted to highlight rather than run through them. Um, 
So I wanted to also mention the improvement on the original measures of party system institutionalization. Unlike Candelaria, I think. I actually liked the, the reframing. <laughs> Yay. Uh, no, I didn't like it. He just wanted to keep the multidimensionality of it. So I, there were good reasons for the four dimensions of the original concept. As Candelaria has eloquently pointed out, whatever happened to roots in society and organization isn't that important. But I think that there is a benefit to focusing on the stability of inter-party competition. I like this new measure. One of the, um, the challenges of multidimensional concepts is what happens when they pull in different directions. What happens if you have a, parties can have solid organizations, but if the wrong party wins, its electoral victory might not be seen as legitimate. That was legitimacy of the parties and the electoral process was another one of those four dimensions. So I think focusing on the stability of inter-party competition is a salutary change. Um, and I think that um, there is a, looking at stability, and you asked about ideological preferences, that's, that's supposed to be one of the things that's supposed to uh, be important in, in measuring stability of the system. I wasn't going to bring this up, but since Scott mentioned that 13 measures might be a lot, it would be good if some young scholar in the room wanted to <laughs> find uh, fewer than 13 measures. But for now, it's all good. For now, it's all good. Um, and most impressive about it is that um, the onslaught of evidence makes a really convincing case. It passes the smell test. If you look at the list of the rank ordering of the party systems that come out, they make the results make intuitive sense, and they're demonstrated empirically. So that, in and of itself, would be a huge contribution. But there is much more to this book. Um, the second point I wanted to mention was um, this point about why these institutionalized party systems are important. Um, again, Scott summarized very nicely. They inoculate, and institutionalized party systems inoculate against outsiders and amateurs assuming power. They make, they lengthen time horizons and so make policy more predictable, less radical. Um, they allow for the provision of public goods. Um, who could argue with keeping out Marine Le Pen or Nigel Farage or Donald Trump? Now that happens. Um, but the evidence for these assertions is empirical and it's, and it's wonderful. But I also wanted, we are at the Ash Center, so I also did want to raise uh, this, this very important normative question. And Scott brought it up here, so the, the door's open for me. If an institutionalized party system protects democracy from populist outsiders, if it lengthens the time horizons of actors, if stability of inter-party competition itself is good and should be a goal for everyone who cares about preserving the democratic process, as I read this, I kept thinking about the trade-off between stability and I can't think of a good term, so I came up with democraticness. Um, there is a trade-off between open rules, access, and the scope of representation in a party system and its degree of institutionalization, I think. Um, that doesn't mean that they can't be a balance, but there is a trade-off. And we know that, and, and Scott brought up the case of the liberals and the conservatives in Colombia. Um, in 1958, we wouldn't want to go back to the time where they shared power and divide spoils. We wouldn't want the Colorados and the Blancos to have prevented the Frente Amplio from winning the presidency in Uruguay. We would want parties to be able to respond to new issues and new constituencies. Um, isn't it natural that programs should evolve to match the time? I also happen to believe that the voters have to know what parties stand for. But there is something, it's somewhere in between these two. There's got to be room for parties to be able to evolve and adapt and for new parties to come forward if, uh, if established parties aren't taking up important issues, issues that are salient in the electorate. So there, what, what about the correction when parties are failing? How does this happen? Again, Scott would not disagree. These are genuinely hard questions. I don't have the answers to them, but I think that they're worth everyone thinking about. My last point was going to be about this question about why party systems are more or less institutionalized. Given all that's at stake, we should be able to explain this. What causes an institutionalized party system? What protects it from decay or collapse? That maybe is what we really want to know. How do you get there and how do you protect it? Why do Uruguay and Chile stay stable? But why did the Venezuelan, the Colombian, even the Argentine party systems um, 
become less institutionalized than they were 20 years ago. Um, moving beyond this typology, chapter four tests this range of possibilities. And as Scott said, um, this, the results were surprising in that past history with democracy, government performance, even programmatic linkages didn't seem to explain um, institutionalized party systems. Um, but strong organizations, uh, generous public funding that concentrates on the main parties, in other words, a barrier to entry, um, those seem to have had an effect. As I was reading this, I wasn't always sure what was cause and what was effect. Uh, but of course, this was acknowledged in the chapter. Anyone who stands up and uh, says he set out to write a book to correct himself, you would expect would also be scrupulously honest about the hypotheses that don't work. Most of us just wouldn't include them. He and Fernando, they display the hypotheses that don't work. Um, and they say rightly that it would take another book to answer this question. But I think it's a, it's a question that, I think it's a challenge to everybody here that it's a question worth answering. And the burden should not be on Scott to do it. He's done more than anybody in the past quarter century to advance our <coughs> understandings of party systems in Latin America. Maybe Fernando could do it, or Aaron. They, they've got a whole career ahead of them. Um, but the rest of us could do our part, too. Today, to Scott, we simply say, parabéns, congratulations. Thank you. I begged Scott, I begged Scott to not make me go after Candelaria and Fran. <laughs> They're so much smarter than I am. I knew, I knew that they would say everything interesting to say. And just to give you evidence of how much smaller my brain is, when, when Scott told me that he was writing a book on PSI, I thought to myself, great, finally somebody's doing a study of the Italian Socialist Party. <laughs> It's been, a, it's been a long month. That's the best joke I could come up with. Um, so, so I'm going to do nothing but tread on the paths that, that Condolani and, and Fran just laid out. Um, so I'm going to start by treading on Fran's path. Um, I hope all of you appreciate the impact of Scott Mainwaring's work on party system institutionalization. Not many books, at least books that I've seen in comparative politics, change so completely the way that we approach a subject. And unlike Fran, I was actually in graduate school. I was in the middle of grad school when, when the Maymore and Scully volume came out. I, I was a student of political parties. And so I knew firsthand what we did before this book. We very clumsily tried to import concepts and theories from Europe. Duverger, Sartori, Lipset, Rokan. We counted the number of parties. And we did not advance very far because existing concepts and theories did not speak very well to what was happening on the ground in Latin America. What really uh, captured and explained variation in Latin America was not the electoral rules, it was not the number of parties, it was not whether party system dynamics were centripetal or centrifugal. It was institutionalization. Many Latin American party systems were weakly institutionalized. Parties were not permanent fixtures in politics. They did not powerfully shape people's part, uh, political identities. They were not necessary gateways to political careers. In short, they didn't structure politics the way that they did or seemed to in Europe. Instead, they sort of come and go, and the politicians in those parties come and go as well. And as Scott pointed out then and now, that heightens the volatility and uncertainty of politics, which has enormous consequences for both the quality and stability of democracy. Um, so the concept of party system institutionalization totally changed the way that we looked at party systems, not only in Latin America, but across the developing world. It really opened up an entirely new research agenda. In fact, uh, of the books on Latin American politics published in the last, I would say, 30 or 40 years, I think only O'Donnell and Schmitter's Transitions volume matched building democratic institutions in its impact. And I think actually the latter book may have a more enduring impact. Now, I agree with uh, way too much of uh, what, what is said in this book, particularly chapter 11, but, um, <laughs> and, and that, but that, that can make for a pretty boring presentation. So let me just say a couple of words about the concept and then throw out three big picture questions that really are not 
Scott's not responsible for, but I think Scott sort of generates. Um, so here I want, in the, in the, in the emerging Garay-Hagopian debate, I want to side a little more closely with Candelaria. Scott does something very bold in this book. He refines the way that he himself conceptualizes the concept and measures PSI. Uh, as, as he himself pointed out, that's not often done, and I, and I applaud him for that. The original Mainwaring-Scully definition was much more encompassing. As Condelati put out pointed out, it included things like parties' organizational strength and their roots in society, also my favorite dimension. In this volume, Scott very explicitly removes these dimensions, removes the dimensions of organizational strength and roots in society, arguing, fairly enough, that they're better understood as causes of institutionalization. They're not defining features of it. So that leaves us with stability. And Scott develops a long, but I think clear and useful, set of measures of party system stability. So rather than, as others have, and as he and, and, and Scully did, rather than defining institutionalization as a complex package of things that we think may cause party system stability, Scott is basically defining party system institutionalization as party system stability. That is a more tractable conceptualization. Uh, and with the exception of my beloved Argentina, whose score I think is too low, I think Scott's measures uh, uh, capture the cases pretty well. I agree with Fran. But it's worth noting, I think, that PSI 2.0 is a theoretically thinner definition. Again, it's one that basically just equates institutionalization with stability. Uh, in fact, I wonder if one could replace PSI with party system stability, PSS, which I think stands for the Senegalese Socialist Party. Um, <laughs> It's worth asking whether anything is lost if we, if we, if we do that. I'm not sure. So the one, the one tiny issue I have with the measure of PSI um, is the inclusion of stability of party program. Both of, the, of my uh, predecessors mentioned this. I think party systems can be highly institutionalized without necessarily parties having a stable program. Paranism, the PRI, APRA, the Colombian, Colombian liberals, the Uruguayan Blancos, the Dominican PLD, the Panamanian PRD are all parties that were highly, not systems, parties, that were highly institutionalized without much of a stable program. To me, adding this dimension, adding the stability of program, biases the measure against machine parties, biases the, the measure against clientelist parties, many of which are highly institutionalized. You may not like them, but they're highly institutionalized. In fact, if you go back to Huntington's definition of institutionalization, a party's ability to change its program without losing the support, uh, without losing its supporters, is actually a sign of institutionalization. All right, very briefly, three three big questions: What causes PSI? Why is PSI weakening in many places? And what are the consequences of that weakening? Chapter four tries to get at the roots of PSI. It examines an impressive array of hypotheses um, derived from the literature. And as Scott pointed out, this is mostly a series of null findings, but some of these null findings are really interesting. Again, um, one of the most widely cited sources of PSI, the persistence of democracy, the persistence of democratic elections over time, is found to have little effect. Institutional design, for the most part, also little effect. Um, but I would have liked to see, this is, this is Scott and Fernando, go a bit further in theorizing what does explain variation in PSI. Where do stable parties and party systems come from? The, the chapter, which is terrific, sticks very closely to the statistical analysis, which I think inhibits them from stepping back and building theory, which is, I don't know, I went to Berkeley. I like that stuff. Um, so let me just throw out two, two factors. One is conflict. Strong parties and party systems very often emerge out of periods of intense, protracted conflict, civil war, revolution, periods of populist mobilization and counter-populist uh, reaction. Think of Spain, Colombia, Uruguay, Argentina, Mexico, El Salvador, even the United States. It is intense and prolonged conflict that creates strong partisan attachments, that mobilizes large number of activists, that induces politicians in many cases to invest seriously in organization. That is where those strong roots in society come from. So conflict is one possible source. Another one is the fact that Scott um, uh, it has written about another work, and which has really influenced my thinking, and that is the state. An effective state is arguably essential over time for PSI. Where the state is weak, where the state is ineffective, governments tend to perform poorly, 
corruption tends to be higher, and parties are more likely to govern in ways that diverge from their platform. And those conditions make it harder for new parties to take root, and they make it easier for existing contenders to weaken or die. Now, the book takes a stab at examining the effect of state weakness. It looks at child vaccination rates, finds not much of a relationship. But I think this is a question, whether it's Scott or Fernando who does the, the next book, that deserves a lot more research. It is very, very difficult to build durable parties and party systems upon weak states. OK, second question is why PSI is in decline? Why are party systems in Latin America and elsewhere becoming increasingly unmoored over time? Now, Scott's answer in Chapter 2 is that PSI is not necessarily in decline. He compares changes in PSI in the contemporary period, 1990 to 2015, to changes in PSI from 1970 to 1995. I hope I'm getting those dates right. And he finds that things have not necessarily gotten much worse in the contemporary period. But that strikes me as kind of an unfair test. Um, 1970 to 95 was a period marked by widespread transition from authoritarian rule by extraordinary economic crisis and by radical economic policy change. All those things can be expected to weaken parties and destabilize party systems. 1990 to 2015, by contrast, greater regime stability, somewhat greater policy stability, somewhat better economic conditions, in other words, conditions that are more favorable to political parties. And yet, party systems continued to weaken. In fact, even some of the better performers on the PSI index, Mexico, Brazil, Honduras, El Salvador, Costa Rica are showing signs of growing instability. And of course, we're seeing similar developments elsewhere, most recently in Italy. The question is why? What's going on? Um, I don't remotely have the answer, but I just want to throw one observation on, on the table. In Latin America, at least, I'm not sure how widely this travels, but the factors that help to stabilize party systems, I'm not sure I would use the term institutionalized, but the factors that help to stabilize party systems in the medium run often get those party systems in trouble in the longer run. Patronage networks, informal power sharing arrangements, organized corruption, what Scott calls collusive institutionalization. So whether it's explicit cartel-like arrangements or just routinized use of patronage, party penetration of the state, particularly systemic party penetration of the state, can help to stabilize the main contenders. It can help to stabilize intra-system uh, intra competition. It can help to raise barriers to new parties. But as we've seen in Venezuela, in Italy, now in Brazil, as we may see soon or already seen to a degree in El Salvador, Mexico, even Chile, the very sources of this medium-term stability can be highly destabilizing in the longer run. All right. What are the consequences of weak PSI? Here Scott is very clear, and he was clear in his presentation. Weak PSI clearly undermines the quality and stability of democracy. Chapter 3, which I'm eager to assign to my students, does a great job of spelling out this argument. It shows, as Scott mentioned, six different negative consequences that low PSI has for democracy. These include um, the election of outsider presidents. The chapter looks systematically at all 10 outsider presidents who were elected in Latin America, I think between 1980 and 2010. Eight of those 10 outsider presidents fell into severe uh, co uh, conflict with Congress. Five out of the 10 took steps to seriously undermine liberal democracy. Now, I, I agree entirely with this argument. But as party systems grow more fluid, both in Latin America and elsewhere, it's worth asking whether and how democracies can adapt to permanently fluid party systems. I like to say, I'm not sure it's true, but I like to say that Peru is the world's first experiment in democracy without parties. Peru does not give a lot of um, cause for hope. As we speak, Peruvian legislators are debating, legislators are debating whether to remove an outsider president three years before the end of his mandate. Uh, but Peru may be the future. In fact, we seem to be on the brink of experimentation with some form of democracy without parties, or actually more accurately, democracy with extreme partisan fluidity in countries with pretty strong democratic institutions. Italy, Brazil, Colombia, possibly uh, Costa Rica, South Korea, maybe even France. How does democracy work? How should we expect democracy to work when party systems are reconfigured at every election? How are politicians 
uh, strategies adapting? And how might we think about redesigning institutions to make democracy function better or operate better in a context of permanently low PSI? That's not a question I like thinking about normatively, but looking forward, I think these are questions that we need to be asking. I think I've gone over. Sorry about that. Thanks. Uh, there's a huge amount uh, to chew on there. Uh, Scott, I'd maybe ask you to hold back and give some magisterial summation at the end because I do want to let some of the other voices in. I, I was very struck with Steve's last comments about this fluidity of party systems. And it seems to me that if I look at a lot of what is happening in areas that I know better, essentially political parties are built on a world that doesn't exist anymore. And it seems to me, if you think about it in the context of Europe, the world that produced the kind of political structures and political parties that we became used to has really moved on. And it's also, I think, related to issues and also to some extent the kind of linkage uh, to different sort of ideas, streams within society, that it's hard to categorize key challenges in the terms of parties anymore. I mean, when you had sort of organized labor, you had other things, it was easy to sort of think of them in those contexts. If I think about what motivates my kids, it's hard to say, is that a conservative party issue, a labor party issue? You know, is it a Cinco de Mayo issue? Because it's kind of cutting across the way we've structured our traditional parties. And I, I don't know how that, it seems to me Latin America is interesting in that context because it didn't have, in many cases, that kind of institutionalization of parties previously. And I wonder how that sort of plays into the kind of dynamics of consolidating parties and party systems. But let's open it up for questions. Uh, let us know who you are. And remember, a question ends with a question mark. And, uh, We'll start uh, taking those in and use the microphones because this is being recorded. So who who is going to get us started out there, Jenny? I'll just raise one of Candelaria's other points: openness and amateurism. Um, you pointed out that um, amateurs are highly correlated in the Latin American context with anti-democratic uh, impulses, um, but. It's not, I think, written in stone that every amateur would have to be anti-democratic. Um, so um, one might not be normatively against amateurs coming in. One would be against anti-democratic amateurs coming in. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how you distinguish among those, but I, I think that maybe amateur, non-amateur is not necessarily the right uh, way of looking at it. So I just wanted to throw out the amateur openness question. Catherine Sicking. There's really a follow-up on that because um, y you mean amateurs that start their own new parties rather than the amateurs that whether existing parties are open to amateurs. Uh, in other words, um, yeah, I, I think you're not saying there's a problem with amateurs in the political system. You're saying that if those amateurs are welcomed by uh, existing political parties. Or also, so Eugene McCarthy, or people who've been professors, people who've been generals, are they amateurs? They haven't come up through the political system. Or presidents of the United States. Do you want to uh, just briefly deal with that issue, Scott? Because that, that's a coherent set of questions. Uh, well, I first, uh, I mean, of course, I completely agree that in principle, amateurs are not anti-democrats. They, they can be sources of democratic innovation. So this was an empirical finding and I think that the way that amateur was defined here was someone who, a full amateur was someone who'd never run for office before, never held any party position and there was one other criterion. But no, I mean I completely agree. This is not um, an ex-ante decree that amateurs cannot be sources of democratic innovation. It's just, it's an empirical cautionary note about, you know, we don't want to think that, oh, you know, the political class is corrupt, let's get rid of all the bums. Uh, you know, the, 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 one of the problems which I do not dwell upon but is 
if you have constant turnover of politicians, right, and everyone, you know, if, if a large percentage of the politicians are first-time novices without previous party connections, um, you know, they have no attachments to the party. They have little incentive to build political careers. They make it difficult for legislatures to function properly. And at least, I think in the Peruvian case, Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense of it is that uh, there and elsewhere, um, you know, these people, since they're not attached to political careers, they have no incentives to avoid corruption. So, you know, many of the problems with corruption, certainly that I know about in Peru and Panama, um, you know, are, are related to this phenomenon of massive influxes of political amateurs. Congratulations, Scott, on the volume. I'm Alicia Holland from Princeton. So at least your indexer forgot the term decentralization. <laughs> and so I wanted to push you a little bit on your thinking about decentralization. Because when you think of what's really changed in terms of political organization in the past two decades, many scholars would point to the reorganization um, of the state and decentralization. And we see arguments on both sides. On the one hand, local politics has long been thought of you know, the the place where partisan identity is formed, people know more, people meet their politicians, you have local mayors who are then coming up through the party system, so perhaps it is a source of institutionalization or stability. On the other hand, there are many arguments out there that decentralization and sort of competing centers of power and financing have undermined party systems in the region. So I didn't see decentralization in that chapter three litany of causes of party system institutionalization, and I'm curious where it fits. I'll just tack on a second question, which is just, if you had redone the 1995 indicators, which cases would we recode? So what are we losing or gaining with this new conceptualization? Should I answer yeah, now? Yeah, I mean, the second question is, actually, it's easy to answer both questions. The first one, you're absolutely right. It is an egregious and unforgivable omission. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I think to, to go back to what everyone here has mentioned, but Fran maybe at the greatest length, you know, democracy rests upon some balance of openness and system maintenance. And um, I think, you know, decentralization was really important for democratic innovation um, for creating new spaces where democracy could be practiced. But it also makes it difficult for parties, for, for the, you know, you used to have these centralized syst democratic systems which converged with very centralized national parties that controlled, right, intermediate and local level politics. I think, you know, to, when that was the case, Venezuela and Colombia are obvious examples, Mexico, it was easier for the central parties to maintain a hold on everything. It did block spaces of democratic practice. Uh, I, do I think that it was worth the risk of opening those systems? Absolutely. Do I think that there were, in many cases, some perverse democratic consequences, yes. Hi, my name is Abril Gordienko. I'm a mid-career MPA from Costa Rica. And I wonder if in your book is there any mention about the increasing penetration of religious movements into, into politics, into party systems, and if you consider it as a threat to party system stability and democracy itself? Um, the book doesn't pay much attention to that phenomenon. Some country chapters do. Uh, I would say in, in principle, I see no reason why, um, especially you know, to the degree that religious movements and organizations, they, they can, of course, build, help to build parties. Um, so they can both disrupt 
and help to institutionalize. Uh, if we look at the history of democratic politics in Western Europe, you know, in particular the countries that have strong Christian democratic parties, right? Of course, you know, those parties helped to institutionalize democratic politics. The same was true, I mean, in Costa Rica, right, for many, for generations, a strong Christian Democratic Party, although it changed names, was a fundamental component of a highly institutionalized system. In Chile, in Mexico, um, for some time in El Salvador, and for a shorter time in Guatemala, this was also true. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't see a reason to posit, you know, that religious organizations or movements would tend to undermine party system institutionalization. But, of course, any kind of movement or organization can disrupt the status quo. Thank you. Yeah, maybe I didn't express myself well. I meant like fundamentalist movements that have no no real ideology, but they build their clientele, their political electorate on their churches, in, in churches, but not as they don't really have an ideology. And that's been happening, well, in Costa Rica, we're facing that right now. And um, as far as I understand, also Guatemalan president is more or less like that. And in some other countries, a lot of members of com Congress come from some fundamentalist uh, movements that don't really have an ideology, politically speaking. No, it's a very important question. And I don't know enough about the Costa Rican case to give you a solid answer. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that you know, that as a group, fundamentalists don't have an ideology. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, of course, there is a lot of variation across fundamentalists. And I think there's a lot of stereotyping about fundamentalists' involvement in politics. But in general, you know, again, if I could contradict myself... Um, to the degree that one can generalize, fundamentalists tend to be toward the conservative spectrum of the conservative side of the political spectrum. So they, they do have an ideology and they would tend more to, you know, adhere to some parts, to some parties and to create some parties than others. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced. I could could be perfectly wrong in this. I'm not convinced that they are, you know, um, a major problem for creating institutionalized party systems. Hey, I'm over here. I'm Manuel. I'm a PhD student in the Gov department here at Harvard. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the relationship between strong parties and outsiders. So, for the one scenario is where you have weak parties or a weak party system, and those coexist with outsiders, that's pretty clear and intuitive. I'm more puzzled by scenarios in which you have party systems that are still relatively strong, and those also coexist every once in a while with very popular outsiders. And it seems to me that if I am in charge of a very strong party, say, in El Salvador, and I have a sort of very popular outsider, uh, I have two strategies. One strategy is to try to sideline that person. Uh, but it seems to me that then the party system becomes something for the outsider to rail against. This is arguably the case in some Central American countries in the past few years, arguably the case in Mexico now. But then it seems to me like the other alternative is to incorporate the outsider into my party. And that's sort of the Donald Trump effect. It, Steve and Dan have a bunch of examples of this happening around the world. So my question specifically is, if I'm in this scenario where I'm in charge of a strong party and a strong party system, and I see an outsider populist emerging, and I want to protect both my party and my democracy, what's the move? What do I do? <laughs> Thank you for giving me an easy question. You know, my um, instinct is to say that um, 
populists who create new parties are typically more dangerous than populists who run on existing parties. Uh, because populists who run on existing parties um, have a lot of capacity to constrain those individuals. Steve and I probably have not sharply different takes on this, but um, probably mildly divergent takes. I think it is true that you know Trump, Donald Trump, has transformed in some ways the Republican Party, but I think. You know, it's also the case that to a degree that was completely unpredictable by his campaign uh, in which he ran as most as a moderate on most issues, um, he has hewed to the Republican line um, where he's diverged from conventional Republicans. And here I completely agree with Steve is, you know, his... Um, his personal style, his um, views about democracy uh, in the world and in the United States. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, he has... Um, I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind, if we compare a case like him or other, you know, um, political novices in established parties... Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the party is a real constraint. Uh, in a case like Alberto Fujimori in Peru in the 90s or Hugo Chavez in Venezuela in the 2000s, right? They were the party. They created the party. The party bent to their will almost entirely. Um, when they wanted to rename the party, they did. When they wanted the party to merge with a different party, it did. When they wanted to disband other, you know, other leaders in that party, it did. When they, if they, if they had wanted to, um, you know, steer course in a quite different direction than they originally did, they could have. Um, the party was no constraint. So I think that's a pretty different situation from one in which you get an outsider um, in, a, in a very established party. Uh, in his 2012 article, uh, Miguel Carreras called, you know, outsiders who he called full outsiders, people who'd never run for office before on parties that never existed before. And they typically have different, very different relationships with their party and with democracy than partial outsiders do. Yeah, maybe one last question and then we'll ask for summation. Um, my name is Aaron. I'm also a PhD student here. Um, and unfortunately, as normal, I have something much less interesting to say than Manuel. Um, but I want to preface this by saying I think the panel today is right that this is going to be a very influential book that all of us who are young scholars will be studying for years to come. Um, your case in point in that, I'm currently here procrastinating on a paper that I should be working on <laughs> using your, some of your data that I should be sending to Manuel right now. Um, but in doing that has made me think about this question of how you've conceptualized and, and measured PSI. And I think this gets a bit to Fran's point about how might we condense um, some of those indicators down to a smaller number or to one? Um, but the question is this, which is how would you measure PSI instantaneously? Um, many of the measures that you've used in the book, from my understanding, look at, at stability and change over time. And these require multiple elections, in many cases to compare over time in order to get your measure of stability. Um, if you were able to be as omnipotent being who get any data that you'd want, is there a way that you think that you could get some indicator of PSI that would tell you at this instant how it is different from a second instant rather than from one period to another? Or perhaps I've completely misunderstood the concept of PSI. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, we usually think about change in party systems in relation to elections. Elections reveal where the real change is. 
you know, if you wanted to look at things instantaneously um, in systems, in deeply ingrained systems, you could par probably look at change in party identification, where party identification has a deep meaning. It does in some places. It does not in a lot of places. So, for example, in the United States, you know, probably, I mean, I would think of it as a tenuous indicator. Tenuous because you're covering 60% of the electorate and not all of it. You know, that is th those who don't have a party identification. But, but that is a pretty important indicator, an instantaneous indicator of trends in some countries. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think you could for, um, you know, you, you wouldn't need a 25-year time span to look at change over time that's more than one electoral period. So, you know, you could think about measurement over 8 years or 12 years or, or whatever rather than um, roughly 25 years. But mostly, I mean, I think the proof of the pudding in the stability and volatility in party systems comes in elections. Does that help you write your paper? <laughs> uh, two things. Uh, there is food and there will be drink for those who wish to stay and talk further and socialize. But, Scott, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, there was a lot of rich comments uh, from the commentators that you want to leave us with. Well... First, I mean, you could get no three more interesting commentators anywhere in the world. I, I, I truly believe that, and I'm you know, privileged to have these three commentators. Um, party roots, I, I, I do think that, I mean, I deeply believe that, you know, that you can get institutionalization in two very different ways, right? One is by rigging the system or to use a much softer description, by engineering a system that greatly favors stability, that falls far short of rigging it. And the other one is very strong roots in society, right? Um, you can build strong connections between voters, social organizations, and parties. So I continue to think that, you know, that this this piece of understanding party system dynamics is really important. Dropping it from the definition doesn't mean that I think it's less important. I mean, I think obviously normatively building strong connections between voters and parties is the much better way to institutionalize party systems. I would add that, you know, that this, too, can have its downsides, in, as we see in the contemporary U.S., right, where by party filters are so strong that a lot of voters don't believe factual information, right? The facts that you believe now are filtered by what party you are a member of, what party you support. So, um, you know, I mean, even strong party roots in society isn't always a, an, an unalloyed good in democratic parties' uh, systems. Um, the second thing is, you know, following on things that I think all three of you said, uh, uh, you know, um, institutionalized party systems are important, at least at the moderate level of institutionalization. But as I already said in response to at least one question, right, you have to balance this with democratic openness and innovation, right? Um, democracy is a balancing act. You want to preserve some kinds of system maintenance, including at least, you know, you don't want to think of parties as an evil that you can overcome with citizen action, and therefore, you know, you favor outsiders and and uh, participatory democracy at the expense of, right, representative institutions of which parties are fundamental. I think I can close there with thanks again to all of you and to the three great commentators. Yes, yeah, so please join me in thanking the panel for stimulating sort of ideas.
You've been listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.